Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. He wanted to come to ball, I wanted that pain. He wanted a bride, I was making my own name. Chasing that fame, he stayed the same. All of me changed like midnight. All right, so that song, you know, as an American in 2024, you're supposed to know all of Taylor Swift's songs. You're almost required to, but anyway, that is Midnight Rain by, um, by in fact, Taylor Swift. And the reason, actually, just hold on to that thought. Hold on to the thought that you are listening to that song right now uh, and that it's by Taylor Swift and that it is of a certain length. Uh, because we're going to talk a little bit about the diminishing length of popular songs in just a second. But let me quickly also clue you into the fact that this is a rarely, these days, used format that we call the scramble. It's when we tackle three different topics. Uh, so a little bit later, you will find out that the beautiful beach that you were lying on in Turks and Caicos a few weeks ago is actually made up in large part of the poop of fish. Uh, it's the kind of thing that we like to tell you. And then towards the end of the show, we'll actually, with um, Groundhog's Day bearing down upon us, we're going to tell you about another animal who predicts the weather better than Groundhog's do. Parentheses. It's a duck. Close parentheses. Sorry about the spoiler. All right. So let's talk about the diminishing length of pop songs, and let's do that with Joe Bennett. Uh, Joe Bennett is a song, uh, excuse me, is a musicologist and professor at Berkeley College of Music who specializes in the analysis of popular music. Joe Bennett, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Colin. Good to be here. So let's just begin with this, that this is sort of something that was in the Washington Post. You had access to a pretty massive data set. And, and just generally speaking, what it looks like, it's not exactly a bell curve, but in the 50s and 60s, popular songs, songs that would be on the Billboard Hot 100, would average less than three minutes. And those songs get longer and longer and longer into the 90s, and then they start getting shorter again. So I don't know. That was my own crude description, but say a little bit more about what you see there. Yeah, that was an excellent summary. So the Washington Post uh, worked with me on some data analysis for that project, they had harvested a huge amount of data, mainly from Spotify streaming information, about the Billboard Hot 100 over a 60 or 70 year period. And they used track duration as one of the data points to try and look at trends in that phenomenon. Uh, so the reason they contacted me was really, first of all, to check their data set uh, to try and figure out, you know, what, what are the outliers? Why are there these crazy long songs and where do they come from? Um, and secondly, to try and make some, let's hope, educated guesses on what might be going on in the world, in technology, uh, more recently on the internet, in songwriting fashion, to affect song duration in this interesting way. 
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on uh, in the earlier days of pop music and in those 50s and in those 60s. Um, we're actually going to look at two different songs by the Beatles first. So I know this is a song that you like to use in teaching your students, Joe. It's all my loving. Uh, do you want to say anything about it before we play a little little bit of it? Yeah, I play this song to my songwriting classes at Berkeley. Sometimes when a bunch of student songs have had very long intros, and I'll say to the students, do you know what my favorite intro of all time is? It's the Beatles, All My Loving. And then I play them this. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. Tomorrow I'll miss you. All right, so that's pretty, uh, you know, an awful lot of songs, particularly pop songs, uh, pop songs in the 90s typically did begin with maybe a 20-second guitar intro or something. That song, the first two notes are sung a cappella. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, it just gets straight to the point. It even opens with uh, with an active verb, you know, yeah. close your eyes. It's uh, and a visual image, all that in three syllables and right. three notes. Yeah, so this is like a lot of these early Beatles songs. It's like two minutes and change. A lot of economy here. But, you know, that thing about the intro, when I read the thing that you had said about the intro, I, I thought of another song from roughly the same era, an album or two later. It all happened very fast, though, with the Beatles, uh, where I thought Lennon did something completely remarkable. So we're going to play a very different approach to opening a song. Also a song that's, I believe, two minutes and 22 seconds. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me understand? Cause I've been in love before and I found that love was more than just holding hands. If I give my so, Joe, as you know, that's the last time we hear that particular musical theme. This is an intro or slash, you know, what, what in the American songbook would be called a verse, uh, such as the Gershwins or Jerome Kern might write. Uh, it, it's a, a piece of melody that is never returned to. The song goes to a completely different place. Um, and, and that's also, I think, in the world of 60s pop music, pretty radical to write an intro. I mean, it doesn't make the song long. It's two minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, you're exactly right. That That is a tradition from way early in the 20th century. So when we think of um, songs from that classic American songbook period, um, you know, songs like Making Whoopi As Time Goes By, Autumn Leaves, somewhere over the rainbow most of those songs actually have a whole as, as you call it there a, a verse section that comes in before what we think of as the start of the of the 32 bar uh, structure that makes up that classic aaba song form but if i fell is interesting in so many ways as you say it's only uh, two minutes and, and change in duration and a lot of the beatles early repertoire being so accessible and so poppy for those mop top years uh, it really was good at getting to the point remarkably quickly but also it's it's got some musical departures i you know I'll grab, grab my guitar here uh, <laughs> if i felt starts on a chord of um i want to say a d sharp minor and it descends chromatically so we get the initial chord i fell in love with you and then down to a d with the promise to be true and then to a d flat or a c sharp and help me understand and then it repeats back to the d 
and then it goes to a completely unrelated yes. chord of E minor. And then we get in, into the verse. So not only is it musically very disparate from the rest of the content, but harmonically, it's a completely different language. It, it's So you end up with that, that really exquisite moment where it hits that E minor chord and the, and the lyric and just holding hands, um, which takes you into a completely new sort of uh, harmonic and melodic paradigm and indeed a new key. Right. And I think the only thing that we need to say about that is you don't need seven minutes to do a lot of interesting musical things. I mean, if, if you want to make something shorter, you can. Uh, and you can still be very, very musically exciting with this. I should say, and this may be something that I've thought about more than you, that um, in that era, there were still long songs or close to that era, there were long songs. Uh, one of the reasons that DJs liked songs like MacArthur Park or American Pie, which were both about seven minutes long, this is before computers fired off your, your cuts. So um, people who needed to go and urinate uh, could do that in a seven-minute song. You could leave your studio, run down the hall to the men's room, go to the bathroom and run back and Pretty typically, Richard Harris would still be singing MacArthur Park. Um, so that was a reason songs could kind of be long. But then, I don't know, do you have some thoughts? Well, let's, let's talk about the 90s, because the 90s are the peak of songs getting really long. I have some theories about what that, why that might be, but I was wondering if, if, if you had any. Well, as ever, you can never look at a cultural object and say, we know exactly why it is the way it is. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the, the cultural Darwinism of pop songwriting is affected by so many factors, technological, economic, uh, and sort of intertextually in uh, cultural aspects. Um, that is to say, fashions in songs. Um, but we can look at correlations of what was going on. So roughly speaking, the duration... Uh, Peak in that data set that we looked at with the post was around about the turn of the millennium, sort of 90s, early 2000s. That was also economically um, the peak of the CD retail market. So it was when CDs were riding high, people were uh, mostly finished replacing their back catalogue, their favourite album with with CDs, and just on the cusp of when Napster arrived and then Apple iTunes Store and streaming and the world that we now inhabit started to arrive 20, 25 years ago. So that's that period, that mid-90s, mid to late-90s period. Um, you can infer that people are... Well, back to your example of what do you have to do before you have to go to the bathroom? You, know, you can you can leave a CD on in the background and you can just let it let it roll. Uh, so, because a CD holds so much more than vinyl, the official um, capacity of a single CD, which of course you don't have to turn over, was seventy four minutes in its spec. Um, it encouraged artists, I suggest, to just keep going with song form, extend song forms, have extra repeats, have longer intros. And there are tons of examples of hits from that era that, uh, yeah, take quite a long time to do what they do. So now the songs are getting shorter. And the, just to go back to that data set, you and The Washington Post are, are looking at these numbers. Songs are getting shorter, dropping down below three minutes again. And even if you look at an individual artist, like this Taylor Swift person we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and she seems very talented. My guess is she's going to be discovered. She's going to break out. She's <laughs> going to have a big career. But um, her her 
album by album by album, as the Post article documented, the average song length is also getting shorter for this particular artist. So, And I know, as you said before, you don't want to assign causation to correlation. Um, but I mean, you know, I don't know. We can look at a few things. I mean, TikTok's got to have something to do with this. Uh, TikTok is, you know, one of the things that is actively eroding attention spans. And, and it's also actively introducing music to people. Well, right, uh, and TikTok is very much the story of the last six or seven years in, in the music industry. Um, so I don't know, Colin, how much time you've ever spent on TikTok. I've probably spent more there than is appropriate for a 50-something college professor to be uh, to be scrolling, but I, I do it for a lot of research. And um, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it gets you, you know, it, it draws you into its world, uh, largely by learning what you like, by your dwell time on a given item, and then reserving you more of that stuff. So even if you're not favoriting things, the machine is still learning about you. And that applies to music as well. Well, I've always been fascinated by the way technologies drive songwriter behaviors um you know so we've been talking about intros what does a radio hit need to do well it needs to keep people listening to the radio and fall in love with the song quickly and tiktok's kind of a turbocharged version of that the goal of any individual tiktok in the darwinist economic metaphor of that ecosystem is to stop you scrolling to the next TikTok. it wants to keep you dwelling on it that's that's a creator's goal that's how they get popularity and followers so it stands to reason that quotes the good bit of the song for the case of a songwriter on TikTok, they're going to get to that good bit faster because they are incentivized artistically incentivized to do so otherwise there's a risk that some casual listeners will walk away and move on to something else now again that's not to be a grumpy old man and say young people today changing attention spans old people have been complaining about young people for many millennia <laughs> um, but what's interesting about it is that the technology is here it is ubiquitous it billions of users tens of billions of uh, tracks uh, videos content um and people are engaging with it in such a way that it is affecting the art form and i just find that really interesting as a cultural dynamic i mean one other thing we should probably mention is the uh, economic structure has changed it hasn't changed in a way that's particularly favorable to creators of music and performers of music but one of the ways that it's changed is that on spotify and other streaming services you kind of get paid every time the song gets uh, played. You don't get paid very much. But uh, an 83-second song <laughs> uh, is going to, you know, uh, is going to create a certain advantage, it's, particularly if you have a whole bunch of other songs along with it, right? Uh, you get maybe more songs that can be played within a fixed amount of the listener's listening time. Uh, it, it might actually, once again, I, I think neither you nor I want to say that's what they're thinking and that's why they do a song that's, you know, minute and 45 seconds long but maybe somewhere in the back back of their minds they're thinking there's no point in turning this into macarthur park well right there's no artistic incentive necessarily other than artistic whim for extending song forms uh and of course you you know we mentioned a couple of tracks from the 70s there a lot of long songs in the 70s because it was the you know the album was the the primary leisure media product that people could take into their homes 
You know, when I teach my history of rock class at Berkeley, whenever they listen to historic rock music, I try to say, well, imagine what it was like. You wouldn't like turn this album off and go watch Netflix or spend time on your phone because those things weren't a thing back then. <laughs> and so if the album had the kind of monopoly on listener, fan, young person attention at that time, it didn't have to work as hard to maintain that attention. Uh, and so now we have so many more digital distractions and uh, it's very easy to be uh, pulled from one medium to another to pick up your phone if the TV's boring kind of thing. Um, that's bound to affect songwriters. But as you say, they don't need to be thinking explicitly about this when they're creating the song. You know, let's make it 86 seconds so we make more royalties prorated. It's It's more just that the whole thing behaves like a cultural ecosystem therefore it's the short songs that rise to the top and those songs then go on to influence other songwriters and before you know it you have a cascading effect where a cultural trend that is liked by the fans feeds back it's kind of in, in a feedback loop to the creators so humans have always done this you know human creators for a while will often give art lovers, shall we say, more of what they think they want. And that's how the mainstream market works. The difference is now that more of what you want is algorithmically generated and you're not trying to persuade a human, you're trying to persuade a machine. All right, we have to stop there. Uh, although Joe Bennett, you're great. I would do a whole show with you and, and still wish we had more time. Joe Bennett is a forensic musicologist and a professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Uh, the occasion for this was an article in which Joe participated. Pop songs are getting shorter in the Washington Post. Thanks for being with us today. And we are going to end with an, a little bit of an 83-second song by Lil, Lil Yachty. It's called Poland. But Joe, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, take it away, Yachty. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Oh, yes. Yes, you love the white sand beaches. But those white sand beaches may contain not a dirty secret, but perhaps a poopy secret. Uh, We will explain this, but we have some things to explain before as we kind of set up this idea. We are so happy to have with us Joe Roman, a conservation biologist at the University of Vermont uh, and the author of the book Eat, Poop, Die, How Animals Make Our World. I mean, just based on that title, you know this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I, I doubt this will be Joe Roman's last appearance on this show, unless he chooses for it to be. Joe Roman, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me on, Colin. It's a pleasure. So, you know, Archimedes supposedly had his eureka moment when he's sitting in the bath, noticing water displacement and specific gravity and all that stuff. Your eureka moment, I believe, involved a whale and something called a fecal plume. So I think you should enchant us with that story. Sure. Uh, Back in the 1990s, I was studying the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale. And one of the first whales I ever saw came up in front of us, in front of the boat. It had mud on its head or bonnet, and it exhales, so it's very loud. And then it rests, and just before it dove, it it raised its flukes and then emitted an enormous fecal plume about the size of the boat. It took me a while for to realize what the eureka moment of this was. But a couple of years later, I learned about the biological pump. The idea behind that is that nutrients and carbon all sink. Gravity is the predominant force in the oceans. I realized that whales did the opposite. Whales dive deep to feed. They come to the surface. And not only do they admit feces, but also nitrogen, phosphorus, and other really important elements that allowed the phytoplankton or the algae to grow, and then for the the zooplankton and fish to eat that algae, and for the whales to eat the fish. So we've been following that story now for a couple of decades, trying to figure out what the effectiveness of this whale pump is in the oceans. And it's been pretty astonishing. I mean, I wonder if you could possibly bring the fecal plume even more alive to us than you already have. I mean, so it's about the size of the boat. Does it go straight up? I mean, I I, I think we're about to ruin the whale watch industry, (laughs) set it back for decades. I think people think about the nice, you know, (laughs) the nice water that sprays up in the air. This sounds very, very different. But so it goes straight up in the air. And like, how much of it is actually poop? That's a great question. So um, when the the whale is floating at the surface or just before it dives, you'll often see a plume and it can vary depending on what they're eating. I'm talking to you from from Vermont and a fellow Vermonter, Snowflake Bentley, said that every snowflake is unique. That's true for whale plumes as well. And they're just as beautiful and just as amazing. They can be bright green, bright red. They can be very dense or sometimes look like the color of oversteeped tea. And I hope that it gets whale watchers excited when they see that. Often a lot of the whale watching boats, if they can, if they have permits, want to go and collect it. It can be a little bit stinky, 
But we learn not only about this idea of nutrient cycling, of how whales fertilize the oceans, but we can also learn their reproductive status, whether they're stressed or not, uh, get an idea of what they're feeding, and even the genetics, how they're related to each other. So I hope that people, when they see these plumes, will be excited and realize that they're very lucky because believe me, um, it can sometimes, we can go days without seeing a fecal plume. Mm. So, I can, I can, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to find these, yeah. so you're very lucky if you see it. I can I can pretty much guarantee the excited part anyway. I think they'll be excited. <laughs> um, so this, I, I think, may, maybe provides a segue to the beaches. And we're, not, we're really not talking about the beaches around here or the beaches of Lake Champlain, obviously, although I think Lake Champlain is full of whales. But... Um, <laughs> But these are like igneous beaches, I think. They're quartz-based or something. Uh, we're talking about the beaches of the Caribbean, the ones where the sand is cool even on a sunny day because it's it's coral-composed. And I used to spend quite a bit of time on the island of St. John, and I just very much enjoyed the cool sand of the beaches, and, and I was aware of the coral. Nobody ever mentioned fish poop. Uh, you're the first person to introduce that idea. So explain the role of fish poop there. I am very happy to introduce this idea. And I, I found this amazing the first time I heard it as well. So for the book, I visited um, the big island in Hawaii and got in the waters of Kona. And one of the first fish I saw are parrotfish. So these are large, brightly colored with a beak, a fused teeth that look like a beak. And that's why they're called parrotfish. They can bite on dead corals and, and, and coral and algae and then um, poop it out. So they'll they'll take maybe three bites a minute. So they're constantly crunching. It almost sounds like biting into a, a Tootsie Pop. But the amazing thing here is they can poop like 22 times an hour. So after I'd spent years trying to find whale feces, I found these beautiful white trails uh, of fish feces almost all over the these reefs why does this matter because this sand is really what forms those beautiful sandy beaches of hawaii also in the caribbean anywhere that we find shallow coral waters and that's really why you won't find it in connecticut or of course there are ancient coral reefs in, in lake champlain but not anymore so in these areas where you have coral reefs there are parrotfish feeding on it and they can create uh, the largest parrotfish, 10,000 pounds of sand a year. So three parrotfish, basically a concrete mixer's worth of sand that's being delivered to those beaches. <laughs> this matters not only because they're forming the beaches of these islands, but it can also help fight against climate change because we know sea levels are rising. The more and bigger parrotfish we have, the bigger and more buffered these beaches are going to be. In Hawaii, about four out of every grains of sand have come from parrotfish or through other types of fish. I think we should rephrase that to say it has come from the butts of parrotfish. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, it's not like they trucked it in there, you know, independently. And yeah, I mean, it really won't help us fight climate change. It'll help mitigate some of the effects of climate change. But still, we cling to whatever hope we can find anywhere, right? That's right. And, you know, animals can help mitigate climate change, but also some species can can actually protect against it. One example are sea otters. They feed 
on um, invertebrates at the bottom of the ocean. And when, the more they feed on those invertebrates, it allows kelps to grow, kelp forests to grow. And there's some indication that that can help store carbon, not only in the kelp, but also when it dies and gets exported out to sea. So they can be our allies in resilience, but also in some cases in reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So one one aspect of all, all this thinking, the thinking that runs through your book, which I will mention again, Eat, Poop, Die, How Animals Make Our World, is that perhaps we might want to look upon seagulls in a slightly more enlightened way. Seagulls, you know, actually, when I was a kid, seagulls were just, they really were just kind of a sign of the ocean, and everybody kind of liked seagulls. And, <laughs> and then in the ensuing decades, uh, seagulls are kind of like sort of winged rats, right? They're just like, Hanging, they're heading for the landfill. Um, so, say a little bit more about how the seagull fits into the cycle that you're describing. Sure. I mean, one of the most amazing systems I got to study here is I went to Surtsey Island off the coast of Iceland. It's a very young island. It's only sixty one years, sixty years old now. So it's younger than some of the researchers that work there. What's been great is they've been able to study how animals affect the the ecology of this system. And the more seabirds you have, the more seabird poop you have. And that allows grasses and other plants to thrive. So if you look at Surtsey from space, you'll see this big green patch that looks like a pasture. That all comes from the nitrogen that the gulls are releasing. Most of these gulls are feeding in the ocean, but occasionally they'll go to Reykjavik or the city. I saw a couple of gulls come in and pick up a, pizza, a piece of pizza off of a cafe table and fly away with it. I don't know if those nutrients got to Surtsey, but these gulls are helping create habitats. And I think of seabirds as maybe the best ambassadors for this because you can see them Pretty much everyone, if you go to the ocean, is going to see a seabird and think about how it's feeding on the ocean and bringing those nutrients to land and how that can actually help a lot of the coastal ecosystems, the dune grasses that we have around here. So I'm hoping I can be an ambassador for these birds and these birds can be an ambassador for this idea, which we call zoogeochemistry, big word for how animals affect the chemistry of the planet. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great thing, and it's it's hard to wrap one's mind around. I mean, once again, around here we think about eutrophication and all the kind of invasive weeds and stuff that are getting in our freshwater ponds, and this sounds a little bit like that, except that it's benign and and actually good, right? That's right. I mean, we used to. So one way we can think about it is we often think of plants and forests as the lungs of the planet, right? They're absorbing carbon dioxide, releasing oxygen, and helping animals and other, other organisms thrive. Animals also play an important role because plants are important, but they don't move. We have trillions of animals every day moving, whether it's a whale, as large as a whale, or down to the size of a midge or a cicada. They're all moving these nutrients around. And in many cases, they're helping these ecosystems to thrive and they're fertilizing their own gardens, just as we do. As we know, if we don't, if you're not, if you don't fertilize your garden, it's going to run out of nutrients soon. The animals are pro providing this for free. Yeah. I mean, you, I think you mentioned the pizza. We don't know what happened there, but we do know that the dumpster behind the In N Out 
uh, burger mm-hmm. is is a place where the seagulls have gone and then they've done something good with what they've found? That's right. They they put some radio collars, uh, radio transmitters on some seabirds in California, and they went. They they fed in Los Angeles and some of the dumpsters around that area, and then released poop back on the islands off the coast uh, of California. So we can track this nutrient movement all the time. Most of it, let's you know, I want to uh, stress is is going to be from fish and other sources in the ocean. But of course, gulls aren't stupid, and their humans leave a lot of food around, so they also move our our own waste as well. All right, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, we're just scratching the surface. Joe Roman, conservation biologist at the University of Vermont, and the author of Eat, Poop, Die: How Animals Make Our World. And speaking of animals. Meet the duck who does a better job of predicting the weather than the groundhog after this. Watch me trying to catch those water bubbles as from a distance, but every time I And we're back. The time to thank our technical producer, the maestro, Mr. Dylan Reyes, who I've discovered left my mic open while I was harmonizing with the Beatles in the A segment. Um, but you know, I mean, that's, that's you're forgiven. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'm not sure the audience forgives you. Uh, today's uh, episode was produced by McCusker, the Wonder Kid, and her very bad cat Penelope. Uh, and we are going to close with something. I'm not saying we saved the best for last, but we might have. We might have, uh, as you probably know, tomorrow is Groundhog Day, if you're listening live today. Anyway, tomorrow's Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, of course, is something you should not observe because, A, uh, it is rooted in pagan witchcraft, and B, groundhogs are really not particularly good at predicting the length of the winter or whatever it is that they claim to be doing. However, there is an animal that is very good at it, like 100% good at it. Uh, and we're, gonna about to, we're about to hear a little bit about that animal from one of its best friends. Uh, one of its best friends is Isaac Torsellini, uh, who is one of the handlers of Scramble the Duck. Tomorrow is Duck Day. If you're on the Duck Day website, you see the countdown ticking down. It's very exciting. Isaac Torsellini, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So uh, tomorrow, uh, it may be Groundhog Day in Pennsylvania, uh, but it's Duck Day in Eastford, Connecticut. Uh, Explain what Duck Day is and the role of Scrambled the Duck in Duck Day. Yeah, so Duck Day is an event. It's similar to Groundhog Day, uh, but instead of Punxsutawney Phil predicting the weather, Scrambled the Duck predicts the weather. So Scramble will come out of his house, he'll look around, see if he finds a shadow or not, and based on that, predict the weather. Uh, unlike Punxsutawney Phil, however, he is 100% accurate, and there's a good reason for that. Unlike Punxsutawney Phil, who spends his life underground, Scramble spends his life in the elements <laughs> with the weather. He kind of knows what's going on and has a much better sense of the weather. You know, and not to throw even more shade, so to speak, on Punxsutawney Phil, but apropos of our previous segment, does anybody for a moment think that the groundhog comes up and poops and then goes back? No, he's just pooping down in there in the burrow. It's disgusting. Uh, and Scramble the Duck doesn't do anything like that. So we should explain what will happen tomorrow. Um, it's Is it at 7.30 a.m.? Is that when you do it? It is 7.30 a.m. 
and and so you and your brothers will be will be there in what appear to be I've watched quite a few of the videos now uh, what appear to be kind of stovepipe hats and I don't know set the scene for us what will you be doing tomorrow yeah so actually tomorrow I will unfortunately not be able to be there um, but um, my other brother will be there and he'll be able to lead the ceremony uh, with some other of our volunteers and help scramble the duck um, predict the weather they'll announce. Um, to the public what's going on. As far as the stovepipe hats, uh, definitely the attire is an important part of the event. It's part of a community tradition that we've sort of put together. And we decided if we're going to create a community event, it's a good idea to have sort of this blast to the past and, and sort of reflect on American heritage. And what's more American than having an event that is formal and even quirky with something like Abraham Lincoln stovepipe hats? And so we started doing that back in 2014 when we started Duck Day, and we've continued the tradition of formal attire, even with the stovepipe hats ever since. All right. We're going to give uh, people a little audio taste of this. Uh, this would be really one, I, I think, one of Scramble's greatest years was 20, uh, 2019. Uh, here's Duck Day 2019, C1, Mr. Reyes. On this day, the 2nd of February, we present the boat of boats, Duck of Ducks, Prognosticator of Prognosticators, Scramble the Supreme. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, says Scramble the Supreme on February 2nd, 2019. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, my shadow do I see. So if you want the warmth to come, move to Tennessee. <laughs> right. So, um, so yes, what, what Scramble seems to do, I mean, there are two scrolls there, right? There's a, and, and each scroll contains uh, a different outcome. Uh, or, do you do the scrolls every year or was that just like a passing fancy? Uh, every year there are two scrolls and Scramble chooses between a winter scroll and a spring scroll. And, and I mean, I don't want to like fact check you or anything, but is it is it really true that Scramble is one hundred percent accurate that, he, that Scramble has never gotten things wrong? Uh, according to the statistics and data <laughs> that we've collected, Scramble has never gotten it wrong. So every year since we went since uh, Scramble started predicting the weather, uh, we've kept track of the outcome of the weather, how people feel about it, whether they've been able to sort of brave the elements or whether they need to stay inside, and really. The, the sort of psychological impact on, on people, whether they feel like it's getting warmer, whether the uh, spring and summer is coming, or whether they feel like it's just a continuation of same old, same old. And so we've kept track of that. And by and large, Scramble has maintained a perfect accuracy rate. And when he said spring, it's been spring. And when he said winter, it's been winter. Um, now, not to introduce any, um, you know, element of sadness to what is an incredibly joyous day, but ducks don't really live forever. Uh, so really, there's been an apostolic succession, just as, you know, Queen Elizabeth died recently and King Charles took over. This, we really are talking about Scramble's heir at this point, right? Correct. Um, and so is Scramble Jr., he's just pretty much just as good as as his dad ever was? Absolutely. So... Uh, Scramble the Duck Sr. went to Stormy Heights Academy, which is a school for weather-predicting ducks, and received a great education that allowed him to predict the weather very well for all the years he was able to. Um, and when he sadly passed, Scramble Jr. also was able to claim the same credentials. He is also a 
doctorate from Stormy Heights Academy and has similar credentials in being able to forecast the weather for uh, the next six weeks. So another thing we should say about this is that this is something that brings the community together. And, and anyone is welcome, free of charge, as I understand it, to, to attend tomorrow's ceremony. Is that correct? Absolutely. We would invite the community to come out from far away or close by. Everybody is welcome. Uh, I mean, the hardest thing you're going to have to do is find Eastford. Uh, and my advice would be to drive east on 84 and take a right or drive east on 44 and take a left. Um, sooner or later, you will you will find uh, Eastford. Uh, and um, I mean, maybe say a little bit more about the community part of this. I mean, how many people typically show up for this event? Yeah, so it's really become sort of a staple of winter in Eastford. Um, it's a small town, maybe 1,600 people. Um and even though it's cold, even though it's often on a work day when a lot of people have to go to work or school or whatever, uh, we usually have a turnout of around 50 people or even more if it's a weekend. And for those who aren't able to attend, we've also been able to, in recent years, set up a live stream. Um, and we usually have a good amount of people who tune into the live stream as well. So Scramble has been um, proclaimed by the state of Connecticut uh, per state rep Pat, uh, Pay Boyd and uh, let's see, uh, was it uh, Senator Champagne probably also has something to do with this, the most accurate weather predicting duck in the northern hemisphere and possibly the world. Has anyone ever challenged this? I mean, are there other ducks who feel like they can do this just as well? From what I've heard, there are no other ducks who are predicting the weather. <laughs> by and large, the duck community is pretty well united behind Scramble. I think I have time for one last question. How how did this, I mean, actually, I asked our first guest about the Eureka moment. What, what, at what point did you or some other member of your family say, you know what, I think our duck could probably do a better job than the groundhog. I mean, do you does anybody remember how this started? Yeah, so it's just started as something of a small family event and has grown since there. And really how it started was Scramble was an only duckling. And he didn't really have any friends. And so we took a lot of care of him, played with him a lot. He became very friendly. And so he was very adept at communicating with us, us communicating with him. And uh, soon we discovered, you know, if we're going to have somebody um, be an alternative to Punxsutawney Phil, it's going to be Scramble because he understands sort of the human needs for weather. And he also, as a duck, understands the weather really well. Uh, well, first of all, this is screaming out A, children's book, B, Hallmark special. See, maybe Netflix series. Scramble's going to become a big celebrity, get addicted to cracked corn. I know how this whole cycle goes on. Isaac Torsellini, you're a great guest and a great representative of Scramble. Uh, now we're going to say thank you and goodbye, but what we're going to ask you to do as these very nice people... <laughs> Some like Jerry Lewis. These nice people. Uh, they're going to ask you to support this station, this insane show where we talk about fish poop and ducks who predict the weather. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you get the old credit card out? <laughs> but it is how we survive. So please be nice and consider supporting us. <laughs> <laughs>